So we're starting a new series today, the Gospel of Luke, Luke chapter 1, verse 1 to 4. And the theme that I chose for this message is in the form of a question, how do you know Jesus is true? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we worship and praise you that we can now come to the wonderful account of the life of your beloved Son, Jesus of Nazareth. We give you praise and thanksgiving. We bow before you with reverence and fear and pray that you would instruct us in the series in the Gospel of Luke and that we would learn more of our Saviour and adore you more, Lord Jesus, and as we see you more, that we would love the Father more. He who has seen me has seen the Father. And that the Spirit would be glorified and honoured and work with power as Jesus is made known. Amen. So some unbelievers think that to believe in Jesus is like believing in Santa Claus or the Tooth Fairy. It's as if Jesus is this figment of some fanatic Jew's imagination, some first century Jew, and perhaps not even a first century Jew, according to some. Makes me think of an article I read about 10 years ago in a Christian magazine, South African Christian magazine of a Dutch Reformed pastor who had denied the faith and said that he's so sorry that he only... Only now he realizes that Jesus never existed. Now, some people do believe that Jesus existed, but according to them, he's not the Jesus of the four Gospels. Rather, he's some mystical figure who was born after a Roman soldier had sexual relations with Mary. And that, of course, is the Jesus of the Jesus Seminar, of National Geographic, of Liberal Theology, and when you, when you listen to these people's arguments or you watch one of their documentaries, some would find it convincing. And, and some believers might even be confused when they listen to these guys. So how can we know for certain that the Jesus of whom we read in Scripture is true? Well, let's listen to Luke. Chapter 1, verse 1. Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. So the first answer to our question, how do you know Jesus is true, is the testimony is overwhelming. Verse 1. So if you, have, if you have enough credible witnesses, then something becomes trustworthy. You can say, I can believe that. For instance, how do you know Plato existed? How do you know Julius Caesar really existed? Or William Shakespeare or Napoleon? Who says someone didn't just suck it out of their thumbs? Someone didn't just make up these stories? Well, we know it's historical fact because there are enough independent witnesses. And in the same way, there are, there's enough testimony 
that Jesus existed. And really, the testimony of Jesus' existence is overwhelming. It's not as if Jesus lived somewhere in a corner and did his miracles and died on a cross and was buried and raised from the dead and then appeared to many. Uh, this didn't happen in a corner. Verse 2 tells us there were eyewitnesses. Acts 10, 37 and 38 says that this, these things happened throughout all Judea. It's, it's well known. Acts 26, verse 26, it didn't happen in a corner. And so there's more than enough evidence to prove that the Jesus of whom we read in Scripture, the Jesus of the Bible, is the true Jesus. Even unbelievers acknowledge this. There was a historian, he lived in the first century, his name was Josephus, a Jew and not a Christian. And he acknowledged, he writes, I, I, I read this in the Antiquities of the Jews. He writes of the existence of Jesus, of his miracles, of his crucifixion under Pontius Pilate, of his resurrection on the third day, and also that he is the Messiah of whom the prophets spoke. I don't know if Josephus actually believed that, but that's what he wrote. Tacitus was also a historian. He was a Roman, a pagan, not a Christian, also lived in the first century. And Tacitus speaks of Christ, who died a horrid death, a gruesome death, under Pontius Pilate, when Tiberius was the emperor. And also many others who lived during the time of the apostles in the first century, they wrote accounts of Jesus, verse 1, inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us. So there is sufficient evidence, there is overwhelming testimony to show that Luke's record and Luke's account of the life of Jesus does not come from his imagination. He searched, he did research, very particular, very specific, very detailed research. He spoke to the eyewitnesses, the first witnesses, and he gives us a very believable and trustworthy record and account of who Jesus is and what he did. And we, that's basically what what we read in verse 1 to 4. Luke is not interested in your sentimental Jesus that lives in your heart if he's not also the historical Jesus who fulfills the Old Testament prophecies. Verse 1, end of the verse, the things that have been accomplished among us. The word accomplished in the Greek there means fulfilled. Jesus fulfills Old Testament prophecy, the Old Testament scriptures, the Old Testament types and shadows. And no one, save this Jesus, no one except for this Jesus can change people's lives. And yet it doesn't stop with history. It doesn't stop. Luke doesn't say, oh, it's just historical. Luke wants people, especially uh, Theophilus, he wants people to have a personal meeting with the risen Christ. What does it help? Jesus is the Savior of the world, but he's not your Savior. So may I ask you, is Jesus your personal Savior? Has He saved you? Have you turned your back on sin and turned to Christ and called upon Him to save you? Does your changed life, your transformed life and character and thoughts and speech and conduct show that Jesus has saved you? That He is the historical Jesus of the Bible? Second answer to our question, if we ask, 
How do you know Jesus is true? The second answer, the testimony is accurate. Verse 2. Any professor at a university, he can see very quickly if someone has committed plagiarism. So here are two students, they're handing an assignment, and one of the students has copied from the other student. How does he copy? Word for word. Or at least great parts of the assignment. So the professor can see this is just copied from the other guy. And it is this very fact that makes the four gospel accounts credible and trustworthy. It's this very fact that shows you they didn't just copy from one another. This is not plagiarism where they sat around a table and said, we need to trick people to make it sound like there are many witnesses to this, but really there's, there's just one guy making up a story. We'll just copy from you. No, every gospel has got its unique perspective. And the differences between these stories, it doesn't show you that the, the life of Jesus, the account of his life is false. It actually show, shows you the account of his life is true. It's this fact that makes it true. To show there are all these different perspectives. If you put, put together the full perspectives, then you get the full picture of what happened. So Matthew and John, they were apostles and they were also eyewitnesses. And they were there. They were there when the things happened. But then Luke and Mark were not apostles. Luke and Mark, they knew the apostles personally. They knew the eyewitnesses, verse 2, just as the eyewitnesses delivered them to us. So they knew the eyewitnesses personally, and they asked them about the detail and what happened. Uh, you see, for instance, 1 Peter 5, verse 13, that Mark is called the son of Peter. It doesn't mean he's biological son. It means he's son in the faith. So Mark worked with Peter and he got his information from Peter. And then Luke worked with Paul and got his info from him. 2 Timothy 4 verse 11 and Philemon verse 24. Now I'm going to say a little bit about that later on because Paul himself wasn't part of the first witnesses to Jesus. But uh, there's a trick there and I'll, we'll get to that later on. So, so these, these eyewitnesses, they could give accurate information. And besides, Luke, though he worked with Paul, he did also know the first eyewitnesses uh, verse 2, he says, those who were with him from the beginning, meaning the beginning of Jesus' ministry, uh, when he was baptized by John and he called his first disciples after that. And they were there and they saw everything Jesus did and taught. So the apostles, they were the, the official eyewitnesses of Jesus' life, of his teachings, his miracles, his glory, his crucifixion, his resurrection, and his ascension. Uh, John 1 verse 14, we have seen his glory. Acts 4 verse 20, where Peter says, we cannot but speak of the things we have seen and heard. Uh, Jesus chose us, not everyone, but chose us to be witnesses of the resurrection. Acts 10 verse 39 to 41, we were I was an eyewitness of his sufferings and his glory, 1 Peter 5 verse 1. 2 Peter 1 verse 16, we saw his glory on the mountain. 1 John 1 verse 1 says that they heard him and they saw him and they lived with him. They even touched him. And those are the witnesses in verse 2, the eyewitnesses. And Jesus chose them to bear witness of him and to minister the word to people, verse 2. 
They were eyewitnesses from the beginning and ministers of the word. Ministers of the word, meaning that the apostles preached the Old Testament, meaning that the apostles also preached the words of Jesus. The words Jesus taught them, the Spirit came and it reminded them of everything Jesus had taught them. John 14, 26. So really, the apostles' words are not their own. The apostles' words are the words of Jesus. John 16, verse 13, the Spirit will come and he'll guide you into all the truth. And it says he will glorify me, he'll take what is mine and he will reveal it to you. He will make it known to you. The Spirit will not speak of himself, but only what he hears he will speak. He will take Jesus' words and speak them. And 1 Thessalonians 2, you see Paul saying a similar thing. That when the Thessalonians received his words, they received it for what it really is. Not the words of men, but the words of God. The word of God. And so when the apostles then took all these teachings of Jesus and they wrote them on paper, that became our New Testament. And that's in the early church. That's how people knew which books are part of the New Testament and which books aren't. So any book that was written by an apostle or someone who worked with the apostles, those books were accepted as Scripture, as the New Testament. Just like in the Old Testament, the words of the prophets are regarded as Scripture, 2 Peter 1, verse 20 and 21. And then other passages in the New Testament tell us this. 1 Corinthians 14, verse 37, If anyone thinks he's spiritual or a prophet, he should acknowledge that the things that I'm writing to you is a, are a command from the Lord. My words are Jesus' words, he says. 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 8. If anyone who rejects this, meaning the things I'm writing here, he rejects not a man, but he rejects God, who gives his Holy Spirit to us. And 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 15. I write to you by a word from the Lord. The Lord has said this. 1 Timothy, chapter 5, verse 18. Paul quotes, uh, he had just said that we should support elders and honor elders. And then he quotes scripture to back it up. And he says, as the scripture says, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out grain. That comes from Deuteronomy 25 verse 4. And second quote from scripture, the laborer deserves his wages. That comes from Luke chapter 10. So Paul acknowledges that the gospel of Luke is scripture. Just like the Old Testament of Scripture. 2 Peter 3, verse 15 and 16. We see that Peter writes, he says, Paul writes about the second coming, and, and he says some of the things Paul says about this is hard to understand, but the unstable people twist this as they twist the other Scriptures. The other Scriptures, meaning Paul's letters are Scripture. They twist the Old Testament, they twist Paul. So Peter acknowledged that. So these, these passages and others, they just put it down. Uh, it's like they lay a foundation to show us that what the apostles wrote and what their helpers wrote, their words really come from God and it's part of the New Testament. Now it's only in the 300s AD, the 4th century, century AD, that, that believers agreed on what books are part of the New Testament and which books aren't. And it's not that they chose a list, not that they chose, oh, let's put these books in, let's leave these books out. Rather, it's that they acknowledged what believers have acknowledged from the beginning, what they had acknowledged from the start. And this all came because of a man called, a false teacher called Marcion. He was born in 85 AD, died in 160 AD. Now, Marcion 
he actually forced the church to say which books are part, which books aren't. Because what Marcion did, like many liberal theologians today, Marcion believed that the God of the Old Testament is an evil God, he's a wicked God, he's a cruel God. The God of the New Testament, he said, that's the true God. He's the God of mercy and the God of love. And according to Marcion, the God, the true God, as he says, that the true God of the New Testament sent Jesus, who was a created being, he sent Jesus to come and to save us, to redeem us from this cruel God of the Old Testament, from Yahweh. And because he believed this theology, when he now compiled a Bible, he put a Bible together, he rejected the whole Old Testament, and he removed any reference in the New Testament to this God of the Old Testament. Any quote from the Old Testament he removed. So in the end, he had a very thin Bible, if, if, it, would had, if it had to be compiled as ours in, in book form. Um, he had a Bible that consisted of the Gospel of Luke, but it was uh, an edited version because he removed any Old Testament passages from the Gospel of Luke and, and any, any references to Jesus as a man he removed. And then he had ten of Paul's letters. That was his Bible. And even those, he reduced them. He removed, he cut out pieces, any reference to the God of the Old Testament and Old Testament texts he removed. Now, you don't need to have a degree in theology to see that Marcion was wrong. So we believe, we believe that the 66 books of our Bible as we have it today, that is the true Word of God. We do not add books to our Bible. We do not take anything away and cut anything out. Deuteronomy 4 verse 2, you shall not add to God's law, you shall not take from it. Deuteronomy 12 verse 32, the same. So you may not add to the Torah, the first five books of the Old Testament. Proverbs 30 verse 6, do not add to God's words, God's words lest he rebuke you and you be called a liar. So don't add to the wisdom literature. And then Hebrews 1 verse 1 and 2, in the old, in the long ago and in the old days, God spoke to our fathers through the prophets. So spoke, that's done in many ways, many times. So you may not add to the prophets. The final prophet who wrote was Malachi, and you may not add to any of that. So you may, may not add to the Old Testament full stop. That's done. You may not add to the New Testament. In these last days he has spoken to us by his son, says Hebrews 1. So the words of Jesus are given to us through the apostles. What the apostles wrote is written. They've laid the foundation. Ephesians 2 verse 20. So that's why the last book of your New Testament, Revelation 22 verse 18 and 19, although it speaks of the book of Revelation, it speaks for the whole New Testament, it is now done. You may not add to these words. You may not take away from these words. And that is why we do not add other books to our Bible. We don't have the Apocrypha. We don't have those extra books in the Roman Catholic Bible. And we do not change the scriptures. We do not add other holy books, so-called holy books. And we do not exalt them to the level of scripture, like the cults do. They've got extra holy books. We do not compile certain prophecies and put them into a bundle and put them into a book, in book form, and say, these are now prophecies. This is what the church needs, like the Adventists, Seventh-day Adventists do with the prophecies of Ellen G. White. We do not place any confession of faith 
above Scripture or on the same level of Scripture. We do not question the Bible. We do not nitpick. We do not say that there are errors in the Bible. We place ourselves under the Scriptures. We do not sit as judges over God's Word. So we regard the Bible, not our opinions, the Bible as the standard of all truth. Third answer. The testimony is specific and particular. It's really meticulous. That would maybe be a, a better word. And that's in verse 3. Martin Lloyd-Jones was a medical doctor in the previous century, a very good medical doctor, and he became a pastor. Now, I think that Lloyd-Jones's medical background influenced his style of preaching. So just like a doctor would come, he would make a general diagnosis, he would ask more specific questions, and eventually he would come to the problem and then give you the solution. That is how Lloyd-Jones preached also. So he would make, he would make a, a general diagnosis of the problem. Here's our spiritual problem. And then he would get more specific, and eventually he would get to the crux or to the, the real need, the real problem. He would highlight that. He would become specific, and then he would give you specific solutions also. That's what Luke was like. Uh, Luke was a medical doctor, Colossians 4 verse 4. He wasn't a Jew. He was a Gentile, and that we also find from Colossians chapter 4 uh, in verse 11. In verse 14, he speaks of Luke, the medical doctor. But in verse 11, he says, he writes of some other people, Jesus called Justice, and some others before that, and then he says, these are the only men of the circumcision among my fellow workers. In other words, these are the only Jews. And then he mentions Luke in verse 14, implying Luke is not a Jew. And what Luke did, also like a, a medical doctor, very meticulous, very specific, very particular, he would um, do research. He would speak to the, the eyewitnesses, these first witnesses very thorough research, make sure of his facts, and then he would write these things in order. Verse 3. It seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely, typical doctor, all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you. Now, he learned from the Apostle Paul, and we know this because we read in the book of Acts, Luke is written to Theophilus in verse 3, but Acts is also written to Theophilus. And he says, in the first book that I wrote to you, Theophilus, meaning Luke, and now he comes to the second book, Acts, Luke part 2, really. And if you read the book of Luke, for instance, in Luke 16, or uh, not Luke, Acts, in Acts 16, in verse 69, you read of Paul going on a missionary journey, and he wanted to go here, and the Spirit prevented him, and they went there, and they went there, and suddenly you come to verse 10 and it says, and we, we, we understood that the Holy Spirit wants us to go to northern, the northern province of Greece, to Macedonia. We. So it changes from they to we. So Luke joined the team and um, Luke then learned from Paul. Now remember, Paul saw the risen Christ, according to 1 Corinthians 9 verse 1. Paul saw him. Paul had revelations. According to 2 Corinthians 12, Paul was in heaven, according to 2 Corinthians 12. Paul 
was taught by Jesus. He was instructed by Jesus for three years in the desert. And that I take from Acts 26.16, where Jesus says, I have appeared to you and I will still appear to you. And Galatians 1 verse 11 and 12, I didn't receive my gospel from men or through men, but I received it uh, through a revelation from God. I re he received it directly from Jesus. And then verse 17 and 18 says, I went, he didn't meet with the other apostles. For three years, he went away. It says, he went into the desert in Arabia. What did he do in the desert for three years? Well, all the other apostles were trained for three years. So if he says, I received my gospel from Jesus, Jesus will still appear to me. I went into the desert for three years. And only then did I go to Jerusalem. It seems that Paul was instructed by Jesus. And like any good medical doctor, Luke did excellent research. So you see, for instance, how meticulous he is in recording historical facts. Luke 2, verse 1 and 2. In, the days, in those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was the governor of Syria. Now, Quirinius was governor of Syria twice in the history books. Now, we're going to get to that passage. I'll explain it. But you see how meticulous he is in his recording of history. Luke 3, verse 1 and 2. In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate being governor of Judea, Herod being tetrarch of Galilee, his brother Philip, tetrarch of the region of Iteria and Trachonitis, and Lysanias, tetrarch of Abilene, during the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, the son of Zebedee, in the wilderness. So he gives you a very specific historical setting. So you see that his research is very well done. And then also note that Luke wrote everything in order. Verse 3, end of the verse, to write an orderly account. Now that doesn't mean that everything Luke writes happens exactly in some chronological order, meaning this happened and then after that then happened. Nobody arranges the order as the Holy Spirit gave him because the Spirit wants to teach us a specific lesson. So for instance, in Luke chapter 8, verse 22, Jesus calms a storm verse 22 to 25, and then Jesus heals a demon-possessed man, verse 26 to 39, and then Jesus heals a woman who is ill, and then he raises a girl who died in the rest of the chapter. So that is put in a very specific order, although it probably did happen in chronological order, to teach you that Jesus has control. He's sovereign over the natural, calms the storm. Over the supernatural, casts out demons. Over sickness, he heals a girl, or he heals a woman. And then over death, he raises a dead woman. So because God is a God of order, and because God has put these things in a very specific order in the Bible, that's, how then, that's then how we should preach the word. That's how we should read the word. You read no other book by just flipping around. Oh, I want to reach page, page 5 today, tomorrow I'm going to start at page 320, then I'll read page 104. You don't read a book that way, otherwise it won't make sense. In the same way, don't just read your Bible a little bit here, a little bit there, here a little, there a little. Um, rather work through a book. Work through a chapter of the Bible. Try to get the big picture. That's one of the reasons why I believe in, in expository preaching. Because 
People should follow the order that the Spirit gave. The specific order, verse 3, to write an orderly account. That's the order the Holy Spirit gave through Luke. And that is how we should read it. And that is how we should preach it. And then in the end, you get the full picture because you went through it verse by verse, paragraph by paragraph, chapter by chapter. So that's what Luke wanted to teach Theophilus in writing his gospel and also in writing the book of Acts. He says, I write to you, most excellent Theophilus. Who was Theophilus? Well, this man's name, it means friend of God. And that title, excellent Theophilus, uh, the Greek word there, you can take from that that, that Theophilus was a Roman official. He was a Roman official with a very high rank. And you see the same thing in, in the book of Acts later on. Excellent uh, Felix and most excellent this and all these Roman officials with the word excellent. And so yes, we can then conclude that it is difficult. We know it's difficult for a rich man to enter heaven and for important people to enter heaven. People of high social status as Jesus taught in Luke 18. Um, because they, they struggle to see their need for Christ. They can't see, why do I need Jesus? I've got money and I'm important and I've got influence and I've got status. So although it's difficult for a rich man and important people to be saved, everything is possible with God. As you see Theophilus here, most excellent Theophilus, that he's learning of the Lord Jesus Christ. And some of you sitting here and some of you listening to the recording or studying this text, um, I think your, the application for you should be, you are in a position, many of you, or some of you at least, to influence rich people, to win rich people for the Lord, to win uh, influential people for the Lord. So use your influence to do that. Why not buy some good Christian material, a good Christian book, just to prick their intellect and to get that going, to get their thoughts going? I think Mere Christianity by C.S. Lewis, that would be a good gift. It's a good place to start. I don't agree with everything in the book, but in general, it's an excellent book. Uh, don't Waste Your Life by John Piper. I think that's a good start. Give that as a gift. And even if it doesn't change their hearts immediately, at least it's, it puts their, puts them, makes them, their thoughts go in a direction. They start thinking. And then you can use the next open door the Lord gives you and you influence them even more. All right, final answer number four. The testimony is certain. That's in verse four. So I remember listening to a question and answer session with John MacArthur. And a girl got up and said, I'm, I'm doubting. I really have many doubts. And she starts doubting God and doubting the Bible. Uh, how can I overcome these doubts? And MacArthur simply answers, read the scriptures, study the scriptures, meditate on scripture. And do, do lots and lots of this and it'll make your doubt disappear. And I think that's very good counsel. Because the more you study scripture the more you see how perfect it is, how wonderful the scriptures are. And very quickly your doubt will disappear. And that's exactly what Luke tells us in verse 4. Why did he write this? Verse 4, 
he wrote this gospel, that you may have certainty concerning the things yet that you have been taught. So he wrote his gospel so that Theophilus could know for certain that all these things he's now going to teach him about Jesus is true. And all the things that Theophilus has already heard of Jesus, it's true, the things you have been taught. So if there's any doubt about Jesus, then the Spirit would use this Gospel of Luke to remove that doubt. And in this book, the Gospel of Luke would also really anchor him in the truth concerning Jesus. It would put his feet on solid ground. So now the question to you, are there any things in the Bible, is there anything in Scripture you have doubts over? You're not sure of this. Is this really true? Do you ever wonder, is everything in the Bible true? Well, read the Bible. Study the Bible. Listen to good biblical preaching. And if you do this, and you become grounded in the truths of Scripture, your doubt will disappear. Your doubt will go away. You'll be like someone who wonders, I wonder if a grizzly bear is really strong. I wonder if a polar bear is strong. You don't have to wonder. Simply tackle the bear and start wrestling with it. And your doubt will disappear very quickly. And then apart from the fact that you should trust God's word, we should also revere God's word and have an appreciation for God's word. So be very thankful that your grandparents and your parents, they didn't have to bring all these truths to you orally and just tell stories around a campfire at night because you don't have any Bible. Be thankful for that. God has moved people to write. And so you can read what they have written. The orderly account to write all these things. Verse 3, so that you can have certainty. Verse 4, if the Bible wasn't, wasn't written down, if we didn't have it in book form, well then you'd have to trust your memory and other people's memories. And you couldn't very easily research and study and find these truths and read them up. And the Bible wouldn't have been accessible to as many people. If we only had oral traditions and people have to tell stories, oh, how many people would really hear this? But now we've got a copy of God's Word written down on paper. And people can't as easily just twist it. And it cannot be lost as easily. If it was just in someone's memory, well, then it dies in that person's memory. But now you've got it in book form. And people die and the word is still there. It's still accessible to us. So be very thankful for the Bible. Reminds me of a story a colleague told me. Um, so when the MacArthur Study Bible was written, they had a very special service at Grace Community Church, a week of preaching, just probably a, a week of thanksgiving for this Bible uh, with the study notes that has now been published. And apparently, according to my friend, one preacher, he, he, he spoke in his sermon and said, you know, we don't appreciate God's word enough. We have the Bible and people shed their blood for this. And people gave their lives for this. But we just, 
we're flippant about the Bible and we don't treat it with reverence and we don't appreciate it. And, and all of a sudden he took his Bible and he threw it down the church aisle and it whack, fell on the floor and with a thump and, and people were shocked. And then he walked down the stairs and he picked up the Bible and put the pages in order again and he pressed it against his, his chest. And he started reciting Psalm 19, verse 7 to 10. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. And so he went on. And my friend said, man, that made an impression on him. Uh, and then, just in case you think he has no reverence for the Bible, it wasn't really a Bible. It was a telephone book that had been bound to look like a Bible. But it made the point... So your, your and my reverence and appreciation for the written word of God will show if you revere and appreciate the incarnate word of God, Jesus Christ. The word became flesh. The word became man. And if you really believe Jesus is true. Heavenly Father, Praise and glory and honor belong to you for the word of God, for the son of God, your beloved son, Jesus Christ. God become human and teaching us these words that we now have in a book. We praise you. Give us wonderful times in the gospel of Luke. In Jesus name we pray. Amen.